about colonization and empires a lot on this podcast, and not without reason. If you live outside of Europe, there's an excellent chance you are where you are because of a colonialist empire. If you live in Europe, there's an excellent chance your country used to be one. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Britain. You know what you did. But as much as I would love to blame the English for everything, they didn't invent colonialism. They weren't the last colonialist empire, and they certainly weren't the first. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Portugal. And then there was the Spanish Empire, and also the French. Oh, the French. For actual centuries, the French were as big a group of colonizers as anybody could imagine. But in America, we don't think about French colonialism very much because, apart from that one quarter in New Orleans and occasionally the weird angry part of Canada, we don't really interact with it very much. But Africa? The French were balls deep in Africa. Wikipedia says there are over 30 French-speaking countries in Africa. Over 30! I'm not one to be embarrassed by my own ignorance very often, but if you asked me to guess how many countries there are in Africa, I might not have even guessed 30. 30 is a lot of countries. There are more French-speaking countries in Africa than I thought there were actual countries in Africa. And that didn't happen because a bunch of French textbooks washed on shore after a shipwreck. Today's film is one of the most respected and acclaimed war films of all time, and one that shines a light on the struggle against French colonialism in a way that has never quite been repeated. It's a favorite of historians, cinephiles, revolutionaries, and counter-revolutionaries. It's a masterpiece of Italian neorealism, which you might not guess right away because it actually has a professional actor in it and absolutely no one speaks Italian. But it's the neorealism that's Italian, not the language, so don't let that confuse you. Because then you go down a rabbit hole of what was the old realism that this realism is the neo-version of, and is this realism a return to or a repudiation of that old realism, or is it the next stage in the natural evolution of what we think of as the concept of realism, and then you will be truly lost. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So seal yourselves up in a wall and no, no, that's, that's bad. So leave your purse in the nearest crowded, no, no, that's objectively worse. Drop your child off with a stranger and promise to be back in an hour, but then never really, you know what? I'm sorry. Nothing funny happens in this movie. So just pretend I said something witty and hilarious along with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director as we discuss Gilo Ponticorvo's 1966 neo-realist true story of resistance to colonialism in French-occupied Africa, The Battle of Algiers. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. Today we're here to talk about a 1966 film called The Battle of Algiers. Or at least in English, that's what it's called. It was La Battaglia di Algeri when it was first released, I think, on the Italian posters. Because it's an Italian filmmaker. I'll go ahead and start it off, but first, my name is Dan, and I'm here. I always forget to introduce myself. You almost <laughs> forgot again. 
We were just talking about it, and you almost forgot. I'm here with my partners who are either laughing or talking shit. Katie. And Liam. And today's film is by director Gillo Pontecorvo. Just going to lay out the Italian for everyone right at the beginning to make it easy. Fragile. <laughs> every time, Liam. Every time you got to do it. Every time. But I'll pass it off right away to Katie for our mission briefing. The Battle of Algiers is a singular film for a lot of reasons. Its story focuses on the leaders of the National Liberation Front as they wage their assault on the French colonialists. And to a lesser extent, we also see the perspective of the military leader of the French paratroopers who have been sent in to resolve the situation. It was filmed in the narrow streets and ancient architecture of the Algerian Casbah, less than a decade after the events depicted in the film took place. Through the use of newsreel film stock, not newsreel footage, but the film stock, telephoto lenses, skillful editing, and cinematography, director Gillo Pontecorvo creates a story out of real events. The film was funded and enthusiastically supported by the Algerian government, but it doesn't flinch away from depicting the dark truth of what the beginning of a revolution means. Both sides commit atrocities, and no one is depicted as anything less than a fully dimensional human being, with the good and bad that that entails. The film struck a chord with the world when it was released that has continued to reverberate throughout the decades. It won the Golden Lion at Venice, along with several other prestigious awards, and also somehow scored three Oscar nominations in two separate years. Critical reviews were effusive with praise, and the only holdouts were the French press. The film was actually banned in France for several years, and its eventual release brought about quite a political stir, as it was the first film released there to really discuss French imperialism with such a blatant realism. The film has been credited with inspiring many revolutionaries and terrorists over the years. And in 2006, it was screened at the Pentagon to, and I'm quoting here, so picture someone making quote fingers. Prompt informative discussion of the challenges faced by the French among members of the military in response to the war in Iraq. So far in our series of films about rebellions and revolutions, we've seen different directors tackle the aspect of realism in very, very different ways. I wanted to know how that aspect of the filmmaking affected your view of it. Liam, you go first. Mm. So I really, I've tried, I've tried many times. I, I don't enjoy Italian neorealism as like a general style. Now I still have to see bicycle thieves. I haven't watched that one yet. And I'm told that that is like the one to see, but I've seen like a lot of the Rossellini films and I've seen this one, which this film is pretty how this film was shot was pretty heavily inspired by Rossellini. Yes. Yeah. It's very much in the, the Rossellini mold. And I'm sure I'll get into this more, but like the, the level of realism where you don't use actors is where I kind of break, break from realism. What do you mean by that? You break from realism and then well, I, I personally break from realism, like the, the neorealism where it's like, it's so truthful that like these people don't even know how to act is where I'm like, I don't enjoy this anymore. And I feel like if you had somebody who was an actor who was good at their job, 
they could have conveyed this situation to me better than probably the person who actually lived through it because they might not necessarily be skilled at retelling or reenacting their the the story that they lived through very rarely do you get somebody who is both a war hero and a good actor and good at playing themselves in a war movie you know what i mean and there's one of those in this film in this film which is crazy and oddly enough he's probably like it's the guy who plays jafar right it is it is jafar and uh the the french colonel the french colonel the actor who played the french colonel jean martin Mm -hmm. i believe yes that's his name jean martin he had very similar experiences to what's described in the film okay which we can go into later but yeah so there's two of them who are fit those criteria and the the guy who plays jafar was honestly uh now i know he the little bit that i read he went into politics afterwards so he actually was fairly adept at being like a charismatic person on film so good job there but yeah i feel like it it hinders the storytelling for me when you commit so so fully to realism that you ignore the fact that you're making a film and an artistic recreation of the events or you're trying to tell a story from a certain point of view or like there's so many things that go into the artifice of making a film i understand the the stripped down nature of it and the value of it and how influential this type of filmmaking was it's just not for me and it doesn't speak to me in a way that a a slightly more not even a lot more just like a slightly more theatrical presentation would it doesn't evoke any emotion in me it doesn't sound like any one particular character pulled you out it's just sort of the idea in general of having a bunch of non-actors was what pulled you out just yeah it's it's not the it's not like oh so and so was so bad it was right i was waiting for you to shit on the jafar actor and then you were like he actually was pretty good so i was like what the hell no (laughs) he he actually was pretty good the character of ali lapont it's Brahim Hajjad. 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 Oh, man. We'll apologize in advance to our Arabic speaking listeners because we are going to suck at all that. I, I believe it would be Bra- Brahim Hajjad. Probably close, maybe. <laughs> Brahim Hajjad, I, I did not really care for in the role of Ali Lapointe. I know he's supposed to, like, he's he's described as being like the hero or the main character or the the protagonist or what have you like the focal point of the story and he's absent for most of it and the times that he's on screen he does not draw me in whatsoever wow and i have to think that at least a part of that is because he is not an actor the only person that i was really drawn in by was well, really, like the two out of the three women who get sent with the bombs, but there's one of them that is more charismatic than the others, and she was good at her job. She flirts back with the soldier, that one? Yes. That's, right. you know, there was, there was that extra level of like, oh, well, I'm going to the beach. No, sorry, I'm meeting some friends. I don't know. There was more character on display there rather than 
just now you go run from the cops. Now you go march in the street. You know right, what I mean? mean? She had some actual dialogue other than like, don't touch me. You know, <laughs> like she had yeah. a conversation. Yes. I thought she was really engrossing. Like she, that character actually had a, a reasonable amount of time to, you know, interact with other people, make an impact. You see to a certain extent, like her thought process while she's in the dance hall trying to drop the bomb off. That's about the most engrossed that I was in the movie. But most of the other actors really didn't do anything for me. And it's not their fault because they're not actors. Okay, Dan, I want to hear your thoughts on this. And then I want to have my little my little piece because this is such oh, a... Oh, yeah, for sure. It's fascinating because I feel completely differently from Liam for totally different me reasons. Too. And yeah, so... This and I want to know, am, am I, am, are, do we all have different reasons? Probably. So let's maybe. hear it. What did, what did you think of the realism in this film and how it affects your viewing of it? Okay. So admittedly, because I'm a film newbie, like I haven't seen Bicycle Thieves. I haven't seen Paisa, which apparently inspired Punta Corvo to go into filmmaking as a profession. Was that Rossellini film from 46 again? So I haven't seen a lot of this neo-realist Italian stuff. However, I read a lot and watched the making of this, so I certainly understood the intent of the filmmaker, which I know we'll talk about in our breakdown. I was really not taken out of any one actor or extra or performer in this film, despite the fact that I would expect to catch something like what Liam is talking about. That never really happened to me. So Jean-Martin was the only real actor he did a phenomenal job. We talked briefly about his background. Uh, he was a resistance fighter in France during the war. So he kind of fought against the Nazis, you know, was a lefty, like a lot of the people who made this film, which again, we'll talk about in a little bit. But I thought that uh, Yasef Sadi, who played Jafar, did a great job being sort of, it's difficult to play a version. I mean, he's playing himself. He's playing like a... Essentially. Yeah, he's playing a character based on himself, right? Because it's like mostly accurate, but it's slightly different. So for someone who doesn't have... And I think it's an amalgamation of a couple of different people. Possibly. But point being, to play someone... If you were just to play yourself and reenact things you've been in, that's one thing. To play something similar to yourself, but that's a different character, is something that is a little bit different and you'd think would require more acting background, but I thought he did a really good job. Brahim Hajaj, who plays uh, Leela Point, I thought he was perfect, but a lot of it had to do with what I know Ponte Corvo did in his direction. He told him exactly how to get tripped. He told him exactly how to run, where to walk. The camera work is very specific on his face, which is his greatest asset. He has these really intense eyes and this really intense looking face. And what Ponte Corvo mentions a lot in the making of this is something that he said was the DNA of the film. And he called it the dictatorship of the truth. So he was saying that he knew it was important to anchor the plot in one person who had acting experience in the French colonel, obviously, but that he was more concerned with verisimilitude of location and the looks of people's faces more than anything else. And so he picked people for their looks. And again, this was made so close to the real events that if someone had died or wasn't available, like Lapointe's character, 
you could talk to people who knew him and would have been able to pick someone out who looked like him. So they really literally both for budgetary reasons and because that was his goal in the realism, he was picking people off the street in Algiers to film this. Now they take this to an extreme extent where, for example, they rebuilt a mock-up of Ali's house where Ali's house was and where he had died and then re-blew it up. And I was like, that's really cool and i'm sure it meant a lot to the people who were there doesn't really matter to the person watching the film if you've never been to algiers and you don't know that specific alleyway like one house is as good as the other right like it's like to go to that extent might be a little overboard but hey that's what they're doing and that's the style and that's what the director was going for for me the thing that i've mentioned before but it goes it takes us all the way back to our third episode when we did they shall not grow old and i talked a little bit about how i feel about black and white film and so i'm not going to reiterate all those points because you can go back and listen to that episode and again i i didn't grow up with black and white film the way katie and liam did so i think it's subjective and we can have our own preferences on whether we enjoy black and white more or whether we enjoy color but when you're talking about trying to make a film realistic for the people who were there and take them back to the time. Ponte Carvo's strategy was to make it look as much like documentary reel and documentary footage style as much as possible. And so that footage being in black and white at the time, that's where the connection to reality was for him and for his viewers. And even he admits that that is subjective. Like how you feel about black and white film is a totally subjective thing. So while I certainly wouldn't dare tell Ponte Corvo how to make his film better or do it different, again, my opinion is I don't care what the technology of film is doing. If you want to immerse me in a story and show me what people really saw, it could be 10,000 years ago that world was still in just as bright and full color and contrast as you and I see with our human eyes. That part of our anatomy hasn't changed. So... For me, the only thing that pulled me out a little bit was the black and white, which we've watched enough old films now here on this show, and I've watched plenty that I'm used to it, and it's not like it ruins the film for me or anything like that. But when we're talking about realism, to the director, the black and white pulled it closer to reality. For me, black and white always pulls more into art and away from reality. So again, I I enjoyed it just fine being black and white, but that's the only thing I would say about the realism for me. None of the performances, none of the casting, location, any of that stuff. I thought that while occasionally you can see a person in the crowd, if you're really looking, who is like forgetting to chant at the right time and kind of looks around and goes, oh, God, I'm supposed to chant right now. Like there's not a lot of that. (laughs) And overall, the way they maneuver the crowds was really seamless. And apparently they, you know, drew lines on the ground, divided the crowds into three groups. So what looks like a mob is actually pretty organized in the filmmaking. But I thought they did a phenomenal job of sort of choreographing the crowd scenes to the point where, you know, again, very famous anecdote that when this was released in the US, it came with a footnote that said no real footage was used in the making of this film because a lot of it looks so real. So that's where I'm at on the realism. Katie, I'm Really curious to hear your opinion. So I try to come at films with what they have to offer. And in this film, the best example is that Ponte Corvo uses newsreel stock, telephoto lenses, the black and white, like all of that is very much of the time period. And they film it in the exact location with the people who 
all of those people are old enough, consider, or well, not all of them, almost all of them are old enough to have lived through these actual events that were being that are being depicted. Ponte Corvo talked about how other than like the principal actors in this, like the background folks are supposed to be more like a Greek chorus. That makes a lot of sense because there isn't a lot of individuality within those folks, but they certainly add something. And I've been thinking about the realism in this movie and how for me it really is what makes it work because the choice to use non-actors and to have just a couple of focal points of acting skill that because they're so sparse still feel natural having Colonel Mathieu play or be played by a you know a thespian actor because he was a stage actor it gives the film a whole lot more gravitas because there are absolutely those people who are very theatrical in their life and and especially if you are a charismatic military leader or any kind of political person, having that level of theatrical drama in how you speak and how you act really elevates your popularity generally. And I think the fact that they use Jean Martin, the actor who plays Colonel Matau, and Yasef Sadi as Jafar, his life story is what this whole film is based on. Mm-hmm. He wrote the book and they, the Algerian government wanted to turn that into a movie. And this is what came of that. So, uh, but he feels very much like an actor in his performance. You know, it's very intense and earnest. So it works. And I think the other aspect of it is that, you know, the majority of these folks aren't people in 1990s L.A. who are all like, oh, look at a camera. Now I'm going to be all awkward. Right. These are people who may not have seen a video camera before or they've seen movies, but it's not it, it's not part and parcel of their everyday life the way that filmed media is to us now. Us now in the 1990s in L.A. It, <laughs> Liam. <laughs> you know what I meant. You're just being well. No, so here's the thing. Like even at the time that this was made, and in, in 1964, 65, probably when they were filming. I was just watching an interview with Aubrey Plaza on Colbert, and she was talking the, the reason, one where she's the witch. Yes, the one where she's the witch, <laughs> and she's talking about working with Michael Caine and how like he never shuts up about acting. And like how to act for the camera and this, that, and the other thing. And it isn't even necessarily just a matter of like hitting your mark or knowing where your cutoff line is. I do my close-up. Watch what I do. I'm going to save this eye for the camera and this eye for you. And I think you should do the same. How do you do that? You're not so, a chameleon. I know. And how I'd do you be like, point your eyes in different Michael, directions? Michael, I'm not doing that. I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, I've got two Academy Awards, and you should listen to what I'm saying. And I remember seeing an interview with Jimmy Stewart where he talked about kissing Marlena Dietrich. And like before, before they went in for the kiss, she said, okay, now... When we're going in for the kiss, make sure that you're looking into my downstage eye because that's going to play better for the camera. Weird little like mechanical shit like that, that I don't think most actors today know or think about. 
But at the time period that this was made and earlier, film actors knew all those little technical sort of tricks. But see, the point you're making supports the point that I'm making. Because yeah. what I'm saying... I'm not saying that we necessarily disagree, but you like it, but I don't. I, I totally, Which is totally a legit interpretation. Right. I'm not trying to say you, right. you should. I'm saying... For me, it works better because of that choice of like, okay, well, we're going to get, you know, non-actors. Okay, then we're going to take realism to the nines. Yes, and I, and I understand that, but it works for me in some scenes, but not in the scenes where we have anybody interacting one-on-one with another person. It works in the crowd scenes. I think that that style works very well for like people running through the streets and the the marching, like those kind of big exterior, more action oriented scenes that filmmaking style works better for me. But when it comes down to like two people interacting and trying to have a conversation, they completely lose me. Okay. It sounds like it works on a different level for all of us. Yeah. And I, I was going to add when you brought up uh, Jean Martin as the actor in the thespian that th- him and Ponte Corvo disagreed a lot on the performance sometimes, but Ponte Corvo forced him to tone it down. So he brought his acting down to sort of a more normal person kind of level or military man kind of level in this case. It's a good choice. And it's interesting because Martin sort of having been a partisan and fought you know, against the Nazis as a Frenchman, hated soldiers, hated soldiering, wanted to have nothing to do with it. And you can see it a little bit. And they talk about this in the making of it, the scene where the paratroopers come in to Algiers and he is leading this platoon of paratroopers down the street. Mm -hmm. It's a little awkward. So if you have an eye for military stuff and you've done a lot of marching the way I have, first of all, that entire unit is kind of so-so at marching. Like there are several people completely <laughs> off step, like in the front of that parade where I was like, Ooh, that's, that's not good. <laughs> Judge. Or any marching band nerds. They're like covered down and guide, right? Right. And this doesn't necessarily mean it's inaccurate. It just means that that unit might suck at marching. But what's interesting is that Martin himself for most of that shot, is off step with the entire platoon. So either they all don't know how to march or he doesn't know how to lead a platoon, which is how the actor felt. In fact, there's a anecdote that Punta Corvo tells where he could tell he was nervous and he could, he just wasn't relaxed enough and, and sort of marching with the right kind of swagger. And he was trying to figure out how to fix it. And he ended up stuffing a bunch of handkerchiefs in both of his uh the like underneath his sho- the shoulders of his uniform to make his shoulders he made him shoulder pads he was, yeah he was already standing up as high as he could with like his shoulders back and looking all proud but he made his shoulders stick up even more and like that fixed it enough for him didn't fix it quite enough for me because again i i could kind of feel it and see it but you know that's from someone who's done a lot of marching and seen a lot of stuff plus marines are super anal about that so they're they're pretty perfectionist when it comes to marching so we had a lot of great research for this. I want to thank Dennis and Kyle up front because it really helped condense some of this long history. French occupation here in, Al- in Algeria was from 1830 to 1962, so over 130 years, and that's a lot of history. We mostly focused on the post-World War II period, and it's too much for us to get into here. However, if you want to learn more about French occupation 
Previous to this, uh, Friendly Fire did a really good episode on the Battle of Algiers, and John in particular talks about some of the interesting reasons why France occupied Algeria in the first place and talks about how Algerian pirates used to go to France and actually in one of the very few cases, or not very few, but in the more recent cases of white slavery, they actually used to raid the French coast and kidnap people and make them slaves. So that was part of the reason why France went to Algeria in the first place. Now, of course, this doesn't have anything to do with modern or you know contemporary Algerians at the time, but it's kind of an interesting colonialism story that's a little different than Dutch colonialism in Africa and British colonialism, etc. And then one last shout out, because I'm sure some of my points will overlap with theirs. I wanted to make a shout out to uh, the History and Technicolor podcast. Uh, they do sort of historical films not just war but they did this one and they did a bang up job i think of uh talking about the history so if you want to learn more about it and hear some other people talk about the real history go listen to that episode immediately after world war ii france faced a prolonged and violent decolonization period there were tragic anti-colonial demonstrations in algeria in may 1945 This was followed by unrest in French Indochina in November that started the First Indochina War, which ended in 1954 with the French withdrawal following the defeat at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in Vietnam. Of course, Indochina is the French and old school name for Vietnam uh, during their conflict there. Following this loss, France was determined not to lose Algeria, its oldest and nearest major colony, which it considered to be a part of France rather than a colony. The struggle to retain Algeria resulted in several political repercussions for France, both internally and internationally, including the fall of the Fourth Republic, two attempted French army coups, and multiple attempts to assassinate Charles de Gaulle, the president of France. The Algerian anti-colonial nationalist movement began during World War II. The path to the Algerian War began with massacres in May 1945 at the Algerian towns of Satif and Guelma, carried out by French colonial authorities and European settlers in retaliation for demonstrations and riots, which ironically began amidst a celebration of the surrender of Nazi Germany. The initial unrest resulted in about 100 deaths. The retaliation, which included summary executions, lynchings, aerial bombings, and shelling by a French cruiser, killed somewhere between 6,000 and 30,000 Muslims. This was a major turning point in the relations between France and the Algerian Muslim population, which included Muslim soldiers in the French army who had just fought for France in World War II. The French defeat at Dien Bien Phu prompted the Front de Libération Nationale, FLN, as it's stated. We, of course, say the National Liberation Front because the grammar is backwards, to launch armed revolts and issued a call for a sovereign Algerian state in November 1954. The FLN was created in 1954 to reconcile and organize various nationalist factions to wage war against the French colonial control. By 56, almost all the Algerian nationalist organizations had joined the FLN. Following the war, the FLN became Algeria's sole legal and ruling party. The single-party rule ended in 1990. The Battle of Algiers To increase international and domestic French attention to the Algerian cause, the FLN brought the conflict to the cities by calling a general strike and planting bombs in public places. The Battle of Algiers, which began on September 30, 1956, when three women placed bombs at three different sites. In the film, we see two of them go off and a third one you can hear. In real life, the one at the airport did not actually work, so only two of them went off. 
The FLN carried out shootings and bombings in the spring of 1957, resulting in civilian casualties that sparked a brutal response from the French authorities. The 10th Parachute Division, under the command of General Jacques Massou, was sent to Algiers to subdue the FLN. Massou was one of several French senior officers that was the basis of the film's fictional Colonel Mathieu. He was allowed to use whatever methods necessary to restore order and eliminate terrorists. Using torture, strong movement control, and curfew, the strike was broken, as well as the FLN infrastructure in Algiers. However, the French brutality, particularly the use of torture, and the demonstrated strength of the FLN to strike urban areas and its support among the Muslim masses created doubt in France about its role in Algeria. So that was that was something that I wish, and, and this is an issue that I have with a lot of movies about revolutions and rebellions from Star Wars to Michael Collins to Battle of Algiers. I wish that it was more clear what was sparking the rebellion. Because a lot of times, like in this one, that is obviously steeped in some very real and not terribly long past history, they just kind of like drop you in. And they don't really give a lot of the backstory on why France is occupying, why, and like how long they were occupying, why Algeria is choosing now to change that status quo. But I think that's a different movie. Like what you're talking about is a different movie. This, this is so much more immediate. And it feels like it is, it is meant to be... For those of us who don't know the story, plunging us into the reality of uh, of those people's lives, and for those who do, showing their experiences in a way that's semi-neutral and compassionate, I would say. So uh, it's not trying to educate in that way. You know what I mean? So it's funny. I can tell there's a theme here where we're kind of going to agree to what we saw on screen. But it's okay. it's hitting us in different ways and we're seeing different sort of pros and cons to it. One of the things that the film benefits from in not giving you the actual history or breaking it down all the way to 1830 and stuff like that is that none of the people in the film were alive back then either. So while they could have picked some more recent events to show what Liam is talking about, meaning what sparked, you know, the immediate events of the film... I think it's interesting being dropped into it because that's how a lot of people, especially younger people that were at that were in the events are going to feel. And I think that that's a theme that we're going to be discussing when it comes to terrorism, freedom fighting, revolutions, etc. It's that there's this cycle of violence that after a while you're just sort of in and you're born into it and it's all around you and like French occupation in Algeria was all anybody knew in that place. And so in the end, none of that really matters all that much to the characters because what they're dealing with is the immediate effect on their lives. For example, where they have to have a secret wedding because it's considered treason or a betrayal to have a public wedding that's not sanctioned by the French government and stuff like that, where people are like, no, F that. Like, we're going to do our wedding in our own Muslim way and have our own ceremony, even if we have to do it underground. 
there's both an advantage and a disadvantage to not sort of painting the picture of all the previous history or even more recent events, depending on kind of what you're trying to accomplish, I think. Right. Right. So the first movie we did in, in this series was Wind That Shakes the Barley. And that's one that very quickly drops you into just the middle of things. But one of the strengths of that movie is that I also thought that it showed while doing that also gave concrete examples of the kind of oppression that the people were dealing with. Mm-hmm. Whereas like Ali Lapoint, we open up on him running a three card Monty game and getting arrested. And then he gets out of prison and the FLN's like, Hey, take this gun, go shoot a cop. And he's like, all right. And like, that's how he got into the revolution. <laughs> and I think the thing is, is this film is not interested in catering to people who don't know what is going on in the context of the movie. It's already two hours long and it's not overly long. I would right. say like it uses its time. Well, but there's no time for explanations of the previous information. If you want to show that story in that way. Well, if it's not, if it's not supposed to communicate something to people who aren't familiar with it, then what is the point of the movie? Well, it is trying to communicate something. It's trying to communicate that Ali is an illiterate. He's a petty thief and small time criminal who is probably in, in reality, he had done time in prison before there was a whole stint of things. They may not show it in the film, but I think potentially what they're trying to highlight there is that often people who end up, leading violence and being important cogs in this wheel are people who not all of them and i'm not trying to disparage them i'm just saying often there are petty criminals and people with experience or with nothing to lose or with nothing to their name and ali seems to me like the kind of character he's young he's strong he's strong-willed he's a hundred you know you can tell he very much is algerian and feels algerian etc and is not happy about the french being there but also he's illiterate and his experience is basically being a street thief or gambler or whatever. Like he's not someone who went to college and has these high ideals. And so when the opportunity comes to him to take his skill set and employ it in trying to get the French to leave Algeria as a bigger picture thing, now he's not the one with the bigger picture. That's Jafar. Jafar is the, you know, ended up being the leader of the FLN. So he knows what's going on. So This could be me just looking too far into it, but part of what I see is that juxtaposition. No, I don't think you're, I I don't think you're looking too far into it at all. Again, I think we're, we're both seeing the same thing here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just didn't like it. (laughs) I think I liked that. How he goes about it just was really fascinating to me, especially knowing all the context. And this is where it gets into, I think, maybe because like I, I watched this film today before we recorded. So I, it's always fun for me when I on the rare occasions I do that to, to talk to you guys about it because I'm working out my own thoughts mm-hmm. as I'm podcasting. But I think with this film, it works because these are the people who went through it. It's not like in Gettysburg, where obviously there's no one alive who is in the Battle of Gettysburg, so you have to get reenactors, whereas the vast majority of the non-actors in this actually experienced all of this stuff. So it adds a different layer to it as an art piece as opposed to a narrative film. And I love that aspect of it. I think that appeals a lot to me, that it embraces being like, well, 
let's go outside of what might work as the best narrative to engage everybody and really just dial in on these folks' experiences and telling their story. Yeah, and and it's funny you bring up Gettysburg. I would say that in a big picture sense, this film had a couple of problems that I talked about during Gettysburg, which was sort of, well, lack of budget was the main issue. And for the most part, they do a good job of that with this. Uh, One of the ways he did it was to not really bring many people from Italy and to use all local people who are probably not getting paid or if anything, were just given, you know, lunch for the day or whatever. Minimal. Minimal pay. Right. So all the extras were really cheap. And there are scenes where there's legitimately 500 people on screen towards the end, you know, where there's a lot of extras. One of the things I noticed is that, so for one, in the style of definitely Italian film. I don't know why. I, I need to eventually look into the history of why Italians love dubbing everything so much. But Italians everything dubbing everything. So it's really common to have. It's the best. It's a European thing too. French films have done it. It is. And I think it's it's mostly because of the difficulty in recording good sound on location at the time. Right. I think that's one of the things. Also, they tended to use actors who didn't speak a common language. Right. So everybody just talks in their own language. Right. And gives their best performance that way. And then they just dub somebody in on top of it. Exactly. Which I also hate. (laughs) It works for me. It does not work for me in the least. In Sergio Leone's movies. It's so hard for me to get over. It's like really difficult. <laughs> and you can do, you can also do that better or worse. And they did, uh, I think like this film did an 80% good job of it, but there are times where you hear someone speaking and their mouth isn't moving or someone's mouth is moving and the speech comes in later. You know, like there are a few instances of that with characters. The other thing I was going to bring up is that the use of blood and squibs both on people and on buildings for you know bullet effects are extremely limited and barely used at all they did a good job with explosions yes. yeah they they spent it all on the blow stuff exactly up like when they blew up right. buildings they blew up buildings or at least they blew up set constructed buildings for real and that's probably what it was in algeria built you know out in the middle of nowhere right but most of the time when you see weapons going off it's pretty bad again sometimes it's done better where they're actually shooting blanks and you see some smoke come out of the gun there are other times where i swear i swear there's one scene at the beginning where there's a drive-by shooting and you see the over the shoulder shot of someone pointing a submachine gun out the window and you hear the sound of the gun going off and you see the people getting shot but I don't think that gun was actually fired and there's no dust. There's no marks hitting the wall. There's no blood squibs. There's no nothing. I'm just like, okay, this is a little bit too much suspension of disbelief for someone who like you guys watches a lot of, you know, war films, especially for this project. Well, especially for something that you're, that you're touting as, as having that realism is super realistic. It's a, it's a weird contrast. I agree. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't know. Again, I think I was looking at this more from an art, art piece perspective where I can still suspend my disbelief, but I know that I'm suspending it. Yeah. So I'm willing to like, just make exceptions for it. It's like, okay, well I obviously didn't have the money for that. And that's mostly what I did too. It's not like it ruined the movie for me. I, they do use it wisely. Mm-hmm. The torture scenes are pretty, 
pretty graphic, pretty, pretty fucking graphic. And they hold on it for a long time and they do a very up close and personal view of it from the perspective of someone who is seeing somebody get tortured. You know, even though it is in black and white, it's a very old movie, still horrific. At least for me, it punched me in the face with like, oh, God, this is uncomfortable. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, I guess we are doing a series where we're probably going to see quite a bit of torture as we already have in oh, in yeah. um, <laughs> The Wind That Shakes the Barley, or at least we saw some. I guess there's none in Hamilton. Right, right. But it is interesting how you can depict something that is effective and affecting in different ways. Uh, we talked about how in The Wind That Shakes Barley it was mostly sound design for the most part with the torture and the you know, yeah. hand torture scene. I'll just leave it at that. In this one, yeah, it, it was... Because it wasn't super graphic or gory. It was just... It felt like newsreel footage. It felt like someone was shooting a documentary inside of a torture chamber for just a second and they were given access or, or like a, a 50s movie where the suggestion of what's happening is more upsetting to your brain than the visuals that they would have been able to produce at the time. You know, they hold the blowtorch and then they Oof. show it almost getting oh, to man. the person and then it just cuts onto the guy's face as he experiences it and then it cuts away. Right. And if you go back to the very beginning of the film... Because the chronology kind of jumps around in the film. But the film opens at the end of a torture scene where you don't see the torture, but the guy's chest oh. is bleeding a little bit. Interestingly, that was someone who was in prison for petty theft. And they got permission from the warden, the prison, whatever, to pull him out of prison under supervision to shoot that scene. I don't know why his face was just the right face, but that's who that guy was. Because he looked like he had just been tortured. And I guess he went back to prison <laughs> right after they were done shooting, I would imagine. You know what's funny is my my dad, when he was little, and Katie, you, you might have come across this in in parenting. Dan, maybe you'll find out one day for yourself. But there's this weird moment where like your kids are watching something and it's something where somebody dies for the first time. And like they mm -hmm. figure out that that person died and then they like have to deal with that. Whether it's like you have to explain to them that no, that person's not really dead or mm -hmm. so on and so forth. But my dad, I remember distinctly my dad telling me when he was little, he thought that when he saw somebody die in a movie, that was somebody who was like, they took out of prison and was like <laughs> sentenced to death in real life. And they said, well, we're oh still going to kill you, but we get, but you'll get to be in this movie. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. And I was like, if I could That's choose amazing that. amazing kid logic. Yeah. Isn't that, that amazing kid makes logic. so much sense. Like a, a, a 1950s kid logic. <laughs> it totally does. It's like, oh, I could see how you get that perspective if you're like four years old. That's hilarious. And also leads into another strange bit of trivia from this. Did you read about the guy that they execute at the prison? No. No. <laughs> so did they really kill him? <laughs> along these same lines. The with the guillotine? Yes. So the oh the character when Ali is in prison, who they pull out and he's screaming you know, Allah Akbar and long live Algeria. And then they cover his mouth, you know, as they're pulling him out, that man who had, I'm assuming participated with the FLN in real life had been sentenced to death three different times in real life. And then I think 
probably was pardoned when de gaulle pardoned a bunch of people after he became president and i don't know if he had ever done the walk to the gallows but i'm sure he had imagined that scenario many a times because the french did still use guillotines at the time that was like the french method and the location was a real prison i don't know if it had inmates in it i'm assuming it did and so when you're you don't really see him up close too much except for the initial scenes where he's being dragged out. But that was a trip to learn that later that like that, I I can't call him an actor, but that person had probably envisioned that scenario and thought about his death in that exact way several times. So no idea what was going through his mind when they actually filmed it, but that's pretty intense. The guillotine is supposed to be a pretty humane way to go though. I'm sure it is. I mean, it looks bad. No, it's not that. It's just the walk and the concept and the philosophy behind it, which is closer to your dad's childhood thoughts about how they did things than like a normal (laughs) film, you know, which is just kind of funny. Alan Rickman has been killed so many times. (laughs) So many. They just keep cloning him. Oh my God. I got to bring this one up for the group and Dave and Shaggy and anyone else who had participated in... So I I brought up how oftentimes bored in the military out, you know, guarding some shack somewhere, doing something super boring where you just end up talking for hours. And at the time we didn't have cell phones or anything. So we're just really trying to kill time. And at some point we came up with this hypothetical, you know, it starts with like, how many coyotes do you think you could take by yourself? And it's like, I don't know, one, two, three, whatever. Oh God. And eventually it led into... How many rabid kindergartners do you think you could fight off like without weapons (laughs) until eventually they would finally take over? Because except for your friend Dave, who apparently thinks he's invincible. Like two, man. Dave's Dave's like no limit. Like I will never I will never be overwhelmed by kindergartners. I'm like, no, Dave, but they're unlimited. Like, honestly, I mean, maybe it's 100 for you, but at some point you're going to run out of energy. And he's like, no. (laughs) I am when the drunk man goes up the stairs and then gets assaulted by like 30 kids, all I could think yes. about, I was like, oh, oh, it's the scenario. Oh, but he's drunk. It doesn't count. Like, I want to see this with a sober person. Like, start fighting those kids. And then he just gets thrown down the stairs and, and whatever. Dude, if but- I were drunk, I'd have a better chance against those kids. <laughs> That's like a, a, a scene where the movie starts to get super, super real, where it, you know, because the beginning kind of feels like it's going to go all in one way and then it's going to be a little bit more propaganda than mm-hmm. film. And then they're like, oh yeah, so we're going to kill you all if you don't follow these rules. It's just how it's going to be. And then there's a bunch of children killing a wino. I, I really never thought that I would see that scenario play out in a film the way I've imagined it. And it was just like, okay, this is the kind of film where we're we're going to see what people actually do in this kind of situation (laughs) and it it took on a whole new level of like oh it's gonna get so dark yeah i'm guessing there were a lot of sex workers that were probably like stoned to death that we don't see in the film exactly and i was really i don't like the erasure but i also appreciate that i didn't have to watch that Mm, shit i mean and they do show the killing of who i assume is like the the mob boss or pimp of of the area yeah he's the local pimp i think yeah, so I was like, okay, I guess that's going to suffice for it all. But yeah, there were some points where I was like, oh, God, how how bad is this going to go? <laughs> it's going to go real bad. And it does. It goes real bad for pretty much everybody. The The only other movie that I've watched recently that is sort of like 
a Muslim civil rights movie would be Malcolm X Mm. and not a war movie, obviously, but uh, has a lot of similar sort of connections and themes, I think, to like the things that these folks were trying to achieve in Algeria and in America during the civil rights movement. As far as like, there was a lot of protecting of the women from the white oppressors and their decadent ways. They didn't like the French influence on their culture in that respect. And that's really kind of a sword that cuts both ways. Right. Mm -hmm. I understand that like, yes, you want to protect your vulnerable members of your society that have been essentially preyed upon by your European oppressors. But like, please just don't stone the sex workers. I don't want that. And don't stone the drunk guy. He's just drunk. Yeah. Don't send your five-year-olds to kill the drunk guy. Yeah. I think that's purposeful. It's a purposeful choice. And therefore it makes it more interesting. Like nothing about this movie is unconsidered. Right. In any way, shape or form. And there are a lot more women and a lot more depictions of women and interactions with women than maybe you would expect for a film about the French army fighting, you know, Muslim rebels in the 1950s. It feels very segregated in some ways, but it also feels like two halves of a whole. Like I would love to hear the thoughts of a woman who lives in that kind of environment who could speak about Mm -hmm. it because it feels very purposeful, like I said, and in no way are women lesser than men or less capable. They do just as much for the rebellion. And I was really thankful to get to see that aspect of it because so often that aspect is just completely erased in history. And this film really embraces and showing that even if we don't get a lot of named characters like we do for the male half of the cast. It also did remind me of a couple of things we've seen in some other movies. Most recently, The Wind That Shakes the Barley. There's an awful lot of like woman comes in, hands off the guns and then like gets the hell out of there Mm -hmm. or is like holding the bicycle outside. So we saw a lot of that in this movie where it's like. This woman's going to walk up to you with a basket. She's going to hand you a gun. You're going to shoot the cop, like that kind of thing. But we also saw a prominent role in Argo, and especially in like a propagandistic way, the speaker for the students' union. Mm -hmm. In a lot of these revolutionary stories, we're seeing more women involved. Maybe not like we see them in Hamilton, but not really part of the revolution story. Mm -hmm. More as like, very interesting background. Yeah, the women who participated as soldiers in the American Revolution, because there were several, they just pretended to be men. Mm-hmm. Or were men, but this was pre, you know, a world with trans folks in it. Yeah, and to give another woman a voice, since we're talking about the women in the film, uh, Irene Bignardi is Ponte Carvo's biographer, and she's she's heavily featured in the making of this and she seemed to say, this is anecdotal, but she was saying that uh, women became more empowered both during the story and during the shoot. And Punta Corvo thinking about that is why him and the editor chose to end the film with a woman to kind of highlight this. So while I think that 
these issues are complicated, especially once you add Muslim culture into the mix, etc., when it comes to liber- women's liberation and their rights and whatnot. But it does seem like women's lives changed for the better after French occupation was gone. Maybe someone can write in and tell us about that. So one thing that's all over this film, I think both in the background and in the foreground of the real events and the way they're depicted, is the moral issue of whether the type of violence that we see is justified. We'll talk about the filmmaker's intention in more detail in our breakdown, but one of the things that I can see here is that by not really having a protagonist in the film, this film sort of has main characters, but it shows you a little bit of what's going on with the French paratroopers and their leadership, as well as the FLN and some journalists. And so you sort of see people doing quote unquote bad things on both sides for different reasons. And, you know, that really made me think a lot about parallels that I've been thinking about for longer, like the Israel-Palestine conflict, what it's like to be born in the midst of something like this, where, you know, you have family members who have been killed by this other side and vice versa. And it's it feels easy for people on the outside to be like, well, why don't you just stop fighting? Why don't you guys just go back to France? Why don't you stop rebelling? You know, it's really easy to point fingers. You could do it with the IRA versus the British forces, as we talked about a little bit in The Wind That Shakes the Barley. When can you justify this type of violence? Can you take sides, etc.? So what were you thinking about when you saw the scenes of violence on both sides in the film? And how do you think the filmmaker was presenting it? Was it neutral? Did you think that it came off pro-France, pro-Algeria? How did it unfold for you? Katie. So I was thinking about that literally throughout the entire film. How do I feel about this? Because I think there are many ways to view politics, because at the core, that's what this is talking about when we talk about freedom and and rights and all of that. We are talking about politics and our philosophical and political beliefs. And in this movie, it very much puts the pragmatist versus the idealist. And I think when you are starting a revolution and you're engaging in that level, you have to be a pragmatist. And I think they, maybe because he helped create this story, the guy who plays Jafar, Yasef Sadi, comes across as someone who is both a pragmatist and compassionate and that he is trying to limit harm but understands that if you want to succeed in making your point you're going to have to do terrible terrible things and i think that the film for me the most interesting thing it explores is that that crux of well if you want to you know take back your country from a giant colonial power you don't do that by politely raising your hand and saying, I would like my rights back, please. Like you you have to really cause some problems in society. You have to kill people. You have to make it so dire. And I think the film tries to go back and forth in showing 
those two sides, both on the FLN side of they're trying to make progress and with the French side of the colonel who's like, well, if I want to root out where these people are, these are just the things I'm going to have to do. Either we leave or I torture people. And I don't agree with that assessment, but he's a pragmatist. And then you have Lapointe, who's the idealist, the one who's willing to sacrifice it all for honor and for glory. It explores both of those ideas, or it, I would say it juxtaposes those two idealist ways pretty well. Bon, allez, les photographes terminés. This is a scene with the journalists where they're asking questions and the one prisoner is there with the colonel. Journalist. Monsieur Benmini, ne trouvez-vous pas plutôt lâche d'utiliser les sacs et les couffins de vos femmes pour transporter vos bombes, ces bombes qui font tant de victimes innocentes? Monsieur Benmini, don't you think it's a bit cowardly to use women's baskets and handbags to carry explosive devices that kill so many innocent people? Ben Mahidi. Et vous? Ne vous semble-t-il pas bien plus lâche de larguer sur des villages sans défense vos bombes au napalm qui tuent mille fois plus d'innocents? And doesn't it seem to you even more cowardly to drop napalm bombs on defenseless villages so that there are a thousand times more innocent victims? Obviously, he's talking about Indochina there. Évidemment, avec des avions, ça aurait été beaucoup plus commode pour nous. Of course, if we had your airplanes, it would be a lot easier for us. Donnez-nous vos bombardiers, monsieur, et on vous donnera le couffin. Give us your bombers, and you can have our baskets. So, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong here. So I know in the history that you gave us, it talked about the Battle of Algiers starting with the three bombings by the three women. Mm -hmm. In the film, that's a retaliation against a bomb that the police plant. So the bombing was on September 30th, 56, and that initiates the Battle of Algiers. But the Algerian War started in 54. So there were other events and other retaliations. Right. The Battle of Algiers is one major battle within this war for independence that ended up ending the war. But I don't know, Liam, to answer your question, the bomb that's depicted being brought by the, the commissaire and his men to that house. Because in the film, that seemed to be the catalyst mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for the escalation right which is kind of like chalk one up for the algerians to me when you're fighting such a larger force you have to improvise and you have to get creative with how you're able to fight back that's the whole idea behind guerrilla warfare you're not going to be able to take these guys in a large-scale confrontation. Right. They don't even have an army here. Yeah, they, they don't. They, so you have to... Yeah, it started with, um, like, six dudes. Yeah, like, grab the guns you can get and shoot them. And then disappear into the streets. It's the way the IRA did it. It's, it's And the IRA was inspired partially by the, the later versions of the IRA, obviously not the ones we see in The Wind That Shakes the Barley, were inspired by by this film and same with the american revolution there was a lot of from the woods firing and guerrilla type warfare there was as well exactly right H hiding behind trees and shit mm -hmm. like which was not cricket at the time <laughs> right it's not fair something 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 omelet something something eggs like katie was saying you do have to force the issue because asking isn't going to get it done 
But in the film, it's the police that bomb a building, and then the Algerians do three bombings in retaliation. And then it escalates from there. That strikes me as as neutral as this film seems to be. I think if it has a bias, it leans that way. Also, Colonel Mathieu, his little uh, straw man argument of like, well, what are we supposed to do? Leave? Do you think we should leave? No, you don't think we should leave. I don't think we should leave. So let's not leave and let's just kill these people. Like essentially is what he's saying. He's like, if we stay, we're going to kill him. And I don't think we should leave. Nobody thinks we should leave. No, it's if we stay, we're going to torture them. That's the cost. Right. But he actually asks the well, guy. The Okay. I think there's a, the, the argument's a little more subtle here because we're not talking about like some gangster that can do what we want. We're talking about a military officer who is the, you know, he is enforcing the will of the French government. And I think what, I think right. the point that he's making here is look, if the French government agrees and signs a treaty, whatever, and decides to leave Algeria, great. I'll wrap my troops up and we'll leave. But right now, the French government is telling us that we need to stay and then we need to pacify the city and get these bombings to stop. Get these. I mean, this is what's going on in the context, right? He's not saying that out loud. Right. It struck me as being very indicative of the colonialist mindset where it's like, well, we can't just leave. That's not even possible. No, that's that's not what he's saying, though. That's what it sounded like to me. I think there's an aspect of that. I think it's interpretable. I don't know if that's what he's saying, but I think it is what he understands the French government to be saying. Not necessarily saying he endorses it or not. I think he is just baldly stating that, like, well, someone wants us to stay here. And unless somebody's going to do something about it, this is what we've been told to do. And this is the way we're going to do it. He's not giving an opinion on whether the French should be in Algeria or not. He's saying, look, the French government is telling us to take care of this. I can't do my job with my hands tied behind my back. I know what I'm doing and I know how to do this. If you want me to stop this rebellion, I can stop this rebellion. But if you're going to put a hundred different rules on me, I can't do this and I can't do that, then it's not going to work. Right. And considering that we know that the Pentagon decided to show this film to U.S. leaders at the beginning of going into the war in Iraq in 2004, I definitely think that that kind of speech is exactly what their mindset was when the CIA came up with their, what is it called? Enhanced interrogation. Thank you where they were justifying torture. That's what I thought of when they showed those scenes. Ugh. It's not torture. It's enhanced interrogation. Right, right. Uh -huh. if, if my memory is serving correctly. If we have anybody listening who was involved, you can just tell us what the right words are. This is the whole like hiding behind the political will of the country and the people. And well, in some ways it's hiding. In other ways, it's just the reality of how the military works. It's his job. This is literally just his job. He can retire and somebody else can do it or he can carry out the will. Right. I did want to say that one of the most interesting things about Jean Martin, the actor, he he signed the manifesto of the 121 when this was happening. <laughs> which was a collection of 121 different uh, artists and intellectuals of the time who were demanding that the French government recognize 
the Algerian War as a legitimate struggle for independence. So I thought, oh, this guy is very passionate about it. And he it. got blacklisted for it. He still made some yeah, films yeah. in some theater, but he definitely felt the repercussions of that from the French government and from French people. What'd you guys think of the score? I thought the score was pretty good. I thought the score was haunting. Do you know who did the score? Ennio Mercone. <laughs> yeah, rest his soul. The how, how do you say it? Ennio Morricone, who of course Ennio Morricone did most of the famous spaghetti westerns, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, and then then he ended up towards the end of his career working with Tarantino and became even more famous with modern generations here. I also just heard some of his music on the radio on my way home from work today on uh, the local classical station. They were playing his music from the Mission. Ooh, yes. Hmm. Here's an interesting fact about this. So, Gillo Pontecorvo actually wrote most of the music for this, but because he wasn't accredited properly, um, he couldn't he couldn't be uh, the person who wrote the score. So he was close friends with Morricone. So they partnered together, and of course, Morricone gave his own thoughts and input. But this was a very collaborative score. Which made sense to me because I was like, okay, I can recognize some of like the usual things that I hear mm-hmm. in Morricone's scores, but it sounded pretty different. So it made a lot of sense that like, okay, this is a con- this is a collaborative work rather than just him doing his thing. Yeah, they're uh, so they're both interviewed in the making of this, and it was interesting to hear them both talk about it because they're. Both pretty strong-willed. Ponte is much more mellow and relaxed, at least in an interview. I don't know how he is actually directing. But Morricone stated that he was like, I don't like directors messing with my music. Like, I have my own ideas. I have a whole creative process, and I want to do what I want to do. And Ponte wasn't about that. We argued a lot. So we both like classical music, and you know they had similar tastes, but they both argued about what music to put in what scene and how it needed to be, et cetera, et cetera. And the one of those repeating drum themes is something that Ponte Corvo came up with, for example. Mm-hmm. But there was a time where they were meeting to discuss the score. I can't remember if they were discussing a particular point in the movie or whatever. And Ponte Corvo was walking up the stairs to go to Morricone's apartment, and he was humming it to himself as he was going up the stairs. And knocks on the door, walks in, they sit down, they talk about it. And he's like, all right, so what do you think of whatever? And Morricone starts to hum or whistle or sing the same tune. He's like, here's what I was thinking. And Ponte Corvo was like, oh, that's amazing. We like literally thought up the same little tune and blah, blah. So we're totally in agreement. And then Morricone, of course, relayed later that he just he could hear him humming up the stairs. So he just tricked him (laughs) by just or appeased him (laughs) by just saying that he had come up with it, too, as if they had both come up with the same exact piece of music. That's delightful. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, I um, I, and I just. Because he's passed on, I have to say that uh, in, I think he won, Morricone won an Oscar for, was it The Hateful Eight? The Hateful Eight. And if you go back, I'm sure you guys have seen it, but for anybody who hasn't, go back and watch 
his Oscar speech because first of all, he doesn't speak English. So he has a translator next to him. This little old Italian man is like having this guy translate everything. And and the translator has this heavy Italian accent. So like, it's just a hilarious situation, but the way he lovingly dedicates the award to his wife, I think Maria is her name is just like, gets me right in the feels because he like picks her out of the crowd and looks at her and his eyes start to tear up and then he just goes like this is for you or something like that i forget what he says it's the most italian thing ever it's just so adorable (laughs) and you know it was his last time on that stage he passed away i think a couple of years after that so i love morricone and so does every italian but also anyone who's watched all the old you know clint eastwood spaghetti westerns and stuff and and or or the thing He did the, the thing right. with John Carpenter. It's fabulous. I recently listened to it during a game night. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love the score to the thing, which we may or may not be doing on Danger Close Enough soon, by the way. Now it's time for the breakdown, the point in the show where we ask, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Katie, what did you think? I think this film is trying to be something that is, or that rather was, of the moment. It is trying to capture a feeling and an event that is not, you know, yet faded into history through its use of you know, trying to really dive into the realism using people who'd experienced all of that and who were able to bring some sense of the weight of what these events left with everybody. Because something like this leaves a lot for the folks who survive. And I think there's also a certain aspect of it that is about confronting colonialism while also depicting in as neutral a stance as possible, what colonialism's response is going to be to this, to an uprising, a rebellion. I think there is kind of a breaking point where there's a certain sense of the film where if you want to understand the individuals that are are being portrayed, you need a lot of internal context because there is so much internal context to all of this. Most of these people have real representations that were alive and did these things. But it is also meant to be something that you can come to with no context or history and still feel some kind of inspiration. I think that's that's the goal here is and obviously in my mind it succeeded if you have, you know, if we're still talking about it today, there are many, many, many revolutionary and rebellious groups who have co-opted these techniques that are very clearly outlined in the film for themselves you know when we think of a terrorist cell today that's exactly what is described in this film in the triangles speech yes exactly exactly and that's one man's terrorist is another man's revolutionary fighter there it is it tries to walk that line and give us the perception from both sides 
Does it succeed? I think that's going to be very personal. Liam, I can see why it just did not work for you. And it's interesting because I think we all have different perspectives and it either works or doesn't work for us for very, very different reasons. And I think that's probably why it's been watched and considered for so long is because it is very, uh, it leaves a lot up to the interpretation of the viewer. I don't know if I can say I liked this movie because I didn't necessarily enjoy watching it because it is pretty dry and generally linear, but it hops around a lot and it takes quite a while to really build up the momentum of having characters and people you can connect with. But I did like thinking about it. I liked all the things that it brought to mind and all of the philosophical questions that it made me ask about not only the conflict in Algiers, but in the larger context of terrorism and revolution. So I'll go with I liked it, I guess. It's, I, positive. Thumbs up. Like it, didn't love it, or like it, but didn't love the experience of watching it, maybe? I mean, I like, for instance, I kind of feel about it, not nearly this intensely, but I kind of feel about it the way I do about Mother, like the Darren Aronofsky <laughs> film. I, I love that movie. I love that movie so much. And you're it's never going to watch fa- it again. And no, I've seen it like four or five times. I watch Oof. it regularly. I, I love that movie, and it's so intense and so upsetting and so awful and yet so great. That's on our Fright Pub list. And so, and I want to talk about it on Fright Pub with you. You have to let me. I've seen it so many times <laughs> um, and thought about it for so many hours. I'll put your name on the list. That's kind of how I felt about this is it's like, I don't necessarily enjoy the experience of watching this, but I like what I get out of it at the end. Nice. Dan, what do you think? So while there's... Definitely, I think a subjective aspect to this film in terms of what was the intent and did it work for you? I have a few more things to tell us directly from the director's mouth or from the writers or both. And so we can actually speak to what was the director's stated intent here a little bit. So Punta Corvo was like Martin. He was also a resistance fighter, except in Italy uh, during the 30s and 40s against the Nazis. When Sadi was he wrote his book and wanted to show what it takes to liberate a country. He was sort of looking for leftist directors that would, you know, back the Algerian government and, and back this idea. But when the, when Potokarvo read the original book, it was too flowery and pro Algerian and he wanted something that was going to be more neutral. So he got together with Salinas, the screenwriter, and they took the material and wrote something more balanced. And Pretty much in the director's words, I'm paraphrasing from my notes here, he wasn't trying to hide their anti-colonial and more leftist sentiment, but he wanted to show both sides of the conflict and keep it kind of balanced. The Algerian government paid for 45% of this film, and for the rest of it, as with the traditional film, Patagotovo had to find the funding, and eventually, you know, one of the roadblocks which he very magnanimously does not name this Italian producer, but he said that when he asked a famous Italian producer for backing, the guy responded, which the first half of this is a very typical Italian phrase, do I have idiot written on my forehead? (laughs) I can only assume that was Dino De Laurentiis. (laughs) I have no idea. The second part of that statement was, why would Italians care about blacks? Holy shit. 
which is an interesting statement on a lot of levels because it's not necessarily highlighting the racism of the producer, if you think about it. It could be, but it's not inherent. It's highlighting that the producer was aware of the inherent racism of the Italian public at the time and that nobody was going to care about this film. Also highlights his ignorance in the fact that I'm not sure most Algerians consider themselves black because they're Arab and Semitic. Someone can write in and correct us on that. I, I don't know how they feel about it. I think they have a variety of uh, of racial representation there. I mean, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there are black people in Algeria and, and there are black Algerians. But I'm just saying like that statement said so simply by an Italian shows like a whole a whole layered level of ignorance, which is a lot of different kinds of ignorance <laughs> <Yes>. going on. <laughs> yes. Ah, fragile. It must be Italian. So the director stated that he wanted to show a relatively neutral depiction while not hiding their anti-colonialist statement. And I agree with that. I think that does come through for me, the way it comes through the most even when Liam mentioned, oh, well, the film shows the cops like bombing the building first and then the Algerian. And I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't really matter because you can, at least to me, because I can tell this cycle of violence has been going for a long time. So it's like the story just happens to drop you in where the cops do the first bombing. But I don't think that's the overarching reality of the big picture. The big picture is this has been going on for a long time. The occupation has been going on for longer than anyone's been alive in this film at the time. Now, the camera work and the way the film is shot, I think does have some moments where, so the women who take the bombs into the clubs, for example, the one at the bar does show her looking around a little bit at the people and the camera does a very slow pan showing you the crowd in the bar overall and a few shots of, you know, people dancing or close-ups of their faces. So the film is making an effort to show you that there are real people in these places that were bombed that are about to die or be maimed. And it kind of shows you that the perpetrators are thinking about it, but it's left a little bit neutral. Are we to understand that the woman with the kid died at the airport? She's the only one that we don't see leave the bomb and get out. I mean, I guess that the film is allowing you to have that assumption. Of course, the fact that the film is super realistic but in real life that bomb didn't successfully go off leaves that kind of open to interpretation yeah i i wasn't sure either and i did also have that question of like okay well i see the other two but we don't see her mm -hmm. leave we just see her like tuck it under there and then it goes to the clock could, could go either way but the point that i'm trying to make is that for the most part the violent actions that both sides take between the bombings and the torture are shown somewhat neutrally in that you don't really see an evil or a moral character. You're mostly just seeing people being pragmatic. I think on both sides, actually, Katie, like you see people mm -hmm. that are doing what they have to do because it's either their job or it's their only choice or both. Yeah. And there's a certain sense on the, on uh, the part of Jafar of like, he does what he has to do, but no more. Mm-hmm. And Ben Mahidi in a different scene also makes a statement like, yeah, bombings and terrorism works great when you're trying to get a revolution started, but that violence doesn't work in the wrong, in the long run because eventually it works against you. And so he was talking about the overarching strategy and even where those types of bombings fit in and where they don't. So there's some discussion to be had about 
that the film has really about idealism versus pragmatism and moral action versus immoral action and whether anyone is inherently good or evil here. But the film doesn't lean too hard either way. I think that inevitably due to the leftist leanings of the people involved in making the film, the support of the Algerian government, the fact that Algeria had indeed won its independence, they voted overwhelmingly for it. This is a country that has been newly freed from colonialism. They're filming this actually only two to three years after Algeria had won its independence. And so there's no doubt that I think they are, again, anti-colonial and supporting that side. But I think the film does do a pretty good job of trying to show it in a neutral light, the way a journalist would see it if they were trying to be factual and if they were interviewing both sides or embedded with both sides, which between the faux journalism realism or neorealism of the film and the actual scenes with journalists interrogating both the French commander and the prisoner, like we discussed earlier, I think he achieves that. So was it on target? Yes. I think it was a really ambitious target to hit and something that for good reason has gone down in the annals of cinema history as an extremely influential and one of the most realistic films that stuck to the truth more than anything else. So yes, I think that they did overall accomplish their goal. Did I like it? It's not a fun watch. And some, some scenes are difficult to watch. Some of them are heartbreaking. You really, again, when you're comparing a soldier to someone who is, you don't really see any suicide bombers in this, but I'm sure there, there were in, in the, in the conflict, you know, it, it, it's, hard to watch and difficult to imagine yourself in that situation but it's also important to be reminded of how much those situations exist in the world today as well the israel-palestine conflict is one that comes to mind right away as as a ancient but also modern iteration of this type of fighting so yeah i liked it it got me it got me more familiar with an Italian director who I honestly hadn't seen anything else by. Now I'm going to be curious to see more of his films. Liam? I fucking hate Italian neorealism. <laughs> I fucking hate it. Of course. Of course you do. Yeah, I really don't enjoy this style at all. That being said, <laughs> let me start there. A little taste. <laughs> In this episode of Liam Hates Blank. So... I'm still kind of stuck on the lack of cause on lack of any kind of context or background, really for a couple of reasons. One, this, this movie does not shy away from bookending with voiceovers and those voiceovers do nothing for me. If you look at a, a more recent example, like Argo, you could make a strong argument that Argo just kind of like drops you into it, except that they take the time, the first like three minutes of the movie to give you a little backstory on like why these people are marching in the street. And then to make a comparison to another movie that we talked about more recently, the last time we saw somebody try to make a neutral war movie was Gettysburg. Oh boy. And fuck that movie too. Liam. That was not trying to be a neutral war movie, and you know it. That was the stated purpose, that it wanted to just give you the facts. Lies. 
just wanted to depict the events. And see, me personally, I tend to have an affinity for the rebellion. I'm oftentimes on the side of the, call it the side of the underdog if you like, but you know, I'm anti-colonialist. I do not approve of enforcing your will onto another people or nation or what have you. So for me to not empathize with them, it takes knowing what their cause is and that their cause actually sucks, like in the case of the Southern Confederacy. So when you tell a story like Gettysburg and you cut off that part of it, that makes me not like that movie. When you tell a story like this, like Battle of Algiers, and you cut off that part of it, it makes me question, like, why aren't you telling me that? And from the history breakdown that the, the, the rundown of the history that Dan gave, you know, it gives us a little bit better of an understanding if you go and you look back through it, but it's kind of the job of the movie to do that in my mind, because otherwise you're really just making this movie for you and your friends mm-hmm. to like, go back and watch. I don't know why you and your friends would go back and watch this because it's not a particularly happy tale, but like if it isn't myth making of the formation of the nation of Algeria, then you need more in there. In my mind, the idea that it was trying to give an even and balanced portrayal of both sides of this conflict. Although the filmmakers had a, an admitted bias, I respect it. And if that was their objective, I think they did an okay job of hitting the target, but I would have liked to see more context. Maybe that would have led to more of a bias. Maybe it would have led to less of a bias. I really don't know because I don't know how they would have depicted that. Did I like the movie? Fucking no, I did not. I did not (laughs) care for this shit at all. And it might not be this movie's fault, but like, dude, just make a goddamn documentary. Like, just make the documentary. There's, there's some kind of like weird chip on the shoulder thing. That's like, it, it, it feels like a bullshit style to me. And the reason it feels like a bullshit style to me is that it's, it's easy to make excuses for it. (laughs) Why does that shot suck? Oh, because we were going for something very realistic. Why is your camera shaking like that? Because we wanted you to feel like you were there. Why can't that guy act? Because we used real people. Like actors aren't (laughs) real fucking people. (laughs) Just goddamn get over yourself and do your fucking job. Your job is to tell a story that connects with people that have no window in. And that's what art is for. And to try to cast off the, the trappings of art in the name of realism. First of all, it's impossible to actually do that. So you're just going to make a bad movie. And it's, it's just that, you know, when you say it's like, oh, we're going to make this realistic. It's actually impossible to do that. You're working in, you're working in a medium, but you're not trying to take advantage of any of the benefits of storytelling that that medium offers you 
you should use a different medium. Like write a fucking newspaper. If that's how you're going to be like, don't bring (laughs) shit. Don't bring that shit into my cinema. This movie had some, had some moments here and there that I, I found gripping, but it's narrative structure blows. Most of the performances are unremarkable. The characters such as they are communicate nothing to the audience or to the other people in the movie. I am shocked. I am shocked that this resonated with literally fucking anybody except the people of Algeria. And the Venice Film Festival. Yeah, no, I'm shocked at that too. And the Academy. <laughs> and several other awards groups. I'm f- flabbergasted that this is like, oh yeah, this is how we do this. Like, I don't understand. I'll tell you who agrees with you, Liam. The French delegation at the Venice Film Festival, because they walked out. Yep. Yep, they really hated it. <laughs> I'm sure, but like, I don't give a shit about the French looking like assholes. Well, no, we all know that. I couldn't care less. I'm just mad at how they made this movie and the fact that it gets a lot of praise and accolades for just being bad at its fucking job. Katie, what are we doing next? Please tell me it's not Italian neorealism. <laughs> Uh, also, the audience should know that uh, I don't know if this was Liam's pick, but certainly Liam plays a part of picking these films. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And anyways, <laughs> the, although this Battle of Algiers was absolutely me, and you okay. y'all can y'all can give a thanks, Katie. Y'all can give a thank you to my dad who suggested it to me. Thanks, Katie's so. dad. Thanks, dad. I I kept it to myself, but I was not fucking excited to go back and try to watch this again. This is the second attempt. In my life at watching this movie. The first one was a failure, but I stuck it out this time and I still hated it. Liam, you made us watch Gettysburg, which is four and a half hours. Honestly, there's no comparison. Exactly. Katie, what are we doing next? (laughs) Next time we are covering 2008's Che, both part one and part two. It talks about the life of Che Guevara and stars Benicio Del Toro, Oscar Isaac and Julia Ormond directed by Steven Soderbergh and written by Peter Buchman, although it is based on the memoir of Che Guevara himself. Have you guys seen it before? I have. I have not. Ooh, okay, interesting. If you guys want to join the discussion online and tell Liam how full of crap he is, you can find us at the Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook, as well as you can write to us directly if you want to at dangerclosepod at gmail.com we also have a patreon where we discuss all kinds of fun things and other films that liam sometimes loves and sometimes hates usually at a 50 50 ratio it's four bucks a month and you can find that at dangerclosepod.com forward slash support we have a lot of uh good things on the list we're putting out our seventh or eighth episode soon Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Fare thee well. I caught a misspeak that I had in uh, the Wind That Shakes the Barley episode. My brain shut off, and at one point I said mushrooms instead of shamrocks. Oh, that's hilarious. I did yes. not catch that. Uh, oh, oh, I caught that. I heard it and I got it.
but I'm just so unfamiliar with St. Patrick's Day and Pittsburgh that I was like, I guess in Pittsburgh, they run around with bouncy mushrooms on their heads for St. Patrick's Day. And it sounded weird, but I also, every fucking thing you tell me about Pittsburgh is weird. So it just never. So you just didn't even question it. No, I just pictured these dudes running around with mushrooms and I was like, whatever. I listened to it again and I was like, did I fucking say mushrooms? Have you ever met somebody that's like legit flicked a cigarette out in somebody's face and then punched the dude next to him? (laughs) What? No. Dave has legitimately done that (laughs) in real life. That's hilarious. You are spreading Dave's business everywhere. I'm not. You you can cut cut this out, but like (laughs) has legit like. Two guys tried to fight him outside of a bar. He flicked a cigarette like they came at him. He flicked a cigarette in one dude's face and punched the other one out. The craziest shit happens to that man. 